0: Hello and welcome to Note Doctors. My name is Paul.
1: My name is Jen.
0: My name is Ben. And we are your hosts. We are all university music theory instructors who are passionate about music theory and music theory instruction. In this podcast, we will be talking about all things theory with some of the best music theory teachers in the country. If you want to know more about music theory and the most effective and innovative ways to teach it, this is the podcast for you. So for today's podcast our very special guest is dr gina root Uh, jen tell us a little bit about dr root
1: gina root is an associate professor of music theory at youngstown state university in ohio she is also the author of the textbook applied music fundamentals writing singing and listening and our conversation touches on Lots of topics including online teaching, pro tips for teaching fundamentals, great music examples to use in the classroom, all sorts of things. She's really fun and engaging, so stay tuned.
2: You know, working with uh, students in fundamentals is almost like working with, with children where you think about their brains are sponges. Right, and you can, and, and as long as they trust you, and, and thank goodness so far they've always trusted me, um, you can really introduce them to some pretty cool ideas, and, and most of the time they're willing to, to,
0: to soak that up. So, today we are so pleased to have as our special guest Dr. Gina Root. Um, Gina, tell us a little bit about um, your background. Why on earth? are you a music theorist? How does that happen to a person, right? (laughs) And um, how do you end up in Northeastern Ohio of all places, right? (laughs) Well, I don't wanna take up the
2: entire 40 minutes, but um, (laughs) I'll I'll start with, uh, I think where everybody starts with with my schooling. Um, I went to Shenandoah Conservatory. It was at the time, Shenandoah College and Conservatory. Uh, Went on for a master's degree at Syracuse University And then did my PhD at the University of Minnesota, and um, ended up coming out the other end of all of that in 2000. Um, And you asked how you know what what on earth possessed me to become a theorist. Well, right now um, you heard it here first. I'm going to air my dirty little secret. I have no degrees in music theory. All three of my degrees are in composition. Oh, me, me too. That's actually me too. Oh my goodness. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my goodness. It's like a secret club or something oh, yeah. that we belong to that
0: you don't want anybody to know. <laughs> oh, I feel so heard and seen right now. Have no uh, idea. I <laughs>
2: <laughs> so, yes, I, uh, I, I got all three of my degrees in composition. Um, when I started down this road, I thought that I wanted to write music for movies or maybe cartoons or something like that. And then, like most of us, I went off to grad school. Um, I went to Syracuse University for my master's. It was the place that gave me the best assistantship, not gonna lie. And um, I was so fortunate to end up there uh, working with a gentleman named Dr. Joseph Downing, who I can unequivocally say taught me everything I know about teaching ear training and music theory, but mostly ear training, that's where I started. And I listened to your first episode with Jenny Snodgrass and and she talked about a moment when she knew this is what she was going to do. And that resonated with me because I had the exact same kind of experience where um, I started off as a a teaching assistant to a theory professor where I was making his photocopies and, and grading his papers and all that sort of thing. And I was, I was kind of dismal with the deadlines and, and getting things done on time and keeping things organized. And Dr. Dowding looked at the situation and said, I think she needs to be in a classroom for her own good <laughs> to sort of force me to get organized. But he also saw that I really wanted to be up in front of people and, and, um, and share my excitement about music. So uh, in the second semester of my first year of grad school, he put me in an ear training, I think it was an ear training two class. And the first day, it it was like a religious experience. I got done with that mm-hmm. first class and I thought, oh, I think this is what I'm gonna do for the rest of my
0: life. And so far that's how it's worked out. That's great. And you uh, graduated um, with your with your doctorate and then, you have not just taught in the states, but you've also, you've taught overseas as well. Can you talk to us a little bit about that experience?
2: Sure, um, I would love to. Uh, I was at Shenandoah starting in 2000, and in 2004, I got the opportunity to go and teach at the National University of Singapore, uh, Yong Suto Conservatory. I had never been to Asia before. I didn't know anything about it. I um, was offered the position through a a connection that I had at Peabody, because yong Su To was Peabody's sister conservatory. And um, so one thing led to another, and I decided to do it. I took a leave of absence from my job at Shenandoah. And I learned so much about myself as a teacher, by teaching Mm. over there. Now Singapore, um, if you ever decide you want to visit Asia, Singapore is a great place to start because English is the official language. Everybody speaks English and it's very modern and very Western. Um, So I taught in English. I I didn't have to teach in, in Mandarin or anything like that. But the second official language of Singapore is Mandarin Chinese. So most people there are bilingual And so what ended up happening is at Yangtzeuto, we had a lot of students who came over from mainland China who did not speak English that well and were able to get by uh, in society on a day-to-day basis speaking Chinese because everybody there could speak Chinese. Um, And so it was more difficult for me to communicate with them in English, that being our only common language. And I suddenly realized the extent to which I rely on humor in my teaching and outright goofiness and sometimes sarcasm and I learned very quickly that none of that was going to work that I really had to stay on point and communicate very clearly and subject and verb you know this is how this works okay and now we're going to talk about this and I had to be very organized in my communication style And that taught me a lot of lessons that that stayed with me in my teaching after that. Um, I also learned that I never want to live on the equator again. (laughs) It was very, very hot. It's hot. Mm -hmm. Yeah.
1: Did they, did you find kind of differences in how, in how, in how they were prepared before they came to you? Yes. From American students?
2: Oh yes, absolutely. Um, well it was a, it is a, uh, kind of a classical conservatory model. Mm -hmm. And I was there in their second year of operations. So there was only a freshman and a sophomore class. And they basically, it was sort of a Curtis model where they only took enough students to, to make an orchestra.
1: Wow. Yeah. And
2: so all these students were really at, at the top of their, of their field. Um, And they, there were some incredible musicians you know and students who had been playing the violin since before they could walk and the, all of that kind of thing um and so the musical preparation was was off the charts uh the music theory preparation that would depend you know um they they could all certainly read music um they they most of them had very good ears but kind of putting concepts together and doing um creative exercises like counterpoint and different kinds of stylistic imitation, um, I think there was a sense uh, this has to be right and this has to be wrong, right? Hmm. So the, there, it, was, it was very difficult to communicate the idea of, um, well, you in this counterpoint, you could write a G sharp here or you could write an E here and both would be okay and they would lead you to different places. Right.
1: No, but no, I want to know which
2: one's right. <laughs> yeah.
1: yeah. Multiple right answers. That's sometimes mm-hmm. that's tough for American students as well, but I can imagine right. if, you, if you had a really ingrained sense of like, there's one way and that's the way mm-hmm. you must do it. Yeah, mm-hmm. that would be tough. Yeah. And then on top of that, you can't rely on analogies or humor or, you know, all of those things. So you're having to explain it in this really direct way.
2: I, I think, you know, once I was there
1: for most
2: of a school year and got to know my students better as you know and 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 this happens no matter where you're teaching true you get better at communicating with them and i i finally got them to understand humor and got them to understand you know sarcasm and (laughs) and and they learned a little about me and i learned a lot about them
1: Mm -hmm. that's great so then you found yourself in ohio at some point, And uh, you wrote a book, a I wonderful a book. fundamentals text. One of the things I love about it is that it incorporates rhythm the whole way through. So it most does, yeah. theory textbooks have like a chapter or two that are dedicated to rhythm. And I've had many a drummer say to me, like, why don't music theorists care about rhythm, which is like, oh, I feel terrible. <laughs> <laughs> of course we care. Although we might not show it the right way, you know. <laughs> so um, could you just tell us about that book and how that came to be? And
2: I I think that I I also, in order to answer that question, I have to tell you how I ended up in Northeast Ohio as well. So right before I got the job in Singapore, I was at Shenandoah, and um, the school asked me to go and run a recruiting booth at the Pennsylvania Music Educators Association, PMEA. And so I did. I went at the last minute because somebody else had to cancel. And... At that conference, I met the man that would become my husband. And then I moved to Singapore. <laughs>
0: <laughs> That's so, usually yeah. the opposite thing that you want to do, right? is to go across <laughs> the globe.
2: So... um Anyway, it all worked out, and I came back, and I, I married him. Um, but uh, he was based here in um, in northeast Ohio, specifically in Kent, where we live now. Um, so we did the academic couple thing for a while, um, where I was in in Winchester, and he he was here in Kent, and it was you know five hour drive each way, and we would do the weekends and all of that. And then finally, I got the job at Youngstown, which uh, made things a lot easier. Um, but uh, my point of telling you that whole story is that, that he's a drummer. So I married a drummer.
1: <laughs> Aha. <laughs>
2: <laughs> and so rhythm was, was on my mind and, and how we teach it. Um, so I wanted to create a book that, uh, it's called Applied Music Fundamentals. And I wanted to create chapters and concepts and exercises that anybody could apply to real music right away. Right that so we get pitch on board and we get rhythm on board as soon as possible and then you can Mm -hmm. put those two things together and start listening for them in whatever music you listen to. Um, I was hoping that a large part of the audience for the book would be non-music majors and I think it's about half Mm -hmm. and half, um, fundamentals classes for music majors and the non-music majors Um, and so I really felt challenged to answer the question well Why is learning about this stuff going to help me understand music better and like music more? So I really wanted to jump in with as much just music as possible. And that meant integrating uh, pitch and rhythm right away.
3: Mm -hmm. I absolutely love that. I always find it a challenge whenever you're teaching fundamentals, even just day to day getting to the music is just uh, so important and it's Mm -hmm. easy to get caught up and then you get just labeled as this theory mumbo jumbo. You're always in your own jargon. And then Mm -hmm. the disconnect, you just get more (laughs) farther, I guess, Mm -hmm. away from where your students really are and their understanding, you know, which is limited. And to bring it closer back just by using actual music throughout is is fantastic. Mm -hmm. I love that.
2: Well, thank you. And I think um, hearing music as soon as possible helps to combat that um, that notion that theorists are pencil and paper musicians. I hate right. that, and I try to fight it if, with everything I do, you know. Um, I think that, um, well, when I teach theory pedagogy, um, and this is a, mm. sort of a, 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 a digression here but when i teach theory pedagogy there's always a fundamentals assignment they have to teach a fundamentals topic and i tell them if you don't make musical sound in your teaching if you don't sing or play the piano or play a recording or something and have it be meaningful to what you're teaching i'm not going to give you a passing grade mm-hmm. because music theory is music. so important yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: absolutely yeah. so what are some of your favorite musical examples you know when you're represented and maybe thinking even of those um, more mundane fundamentals topics that you know that uh, you don't always have an instant you know musical analog what are some of those musical examples that you're like this is i love to use this when i'm teaching that or this is a great example for when i'm presenting on this fundamental topic i know i'm putting you on the spot right yeah, i was going to <laughs> i might have to
2: take a pause on this one um especially because i am teaching music fundamentals right now um so I'll just give you something that I taught the other day. Uh, we, we just started Compound Meter. And um, one of the things I love to do is find popular music that is in odd meters. And so mm-hmm. I have a little collection, just a little notebook of songs, rock, rock songs that are in 9-8 or a 9-8 mm-hmm. feel. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And one of those, and of course, the older we get, the, the fewer and fewer students know the music we know, but one of it is, right. is uh, Take It to the Limit by The Eagles, oh, yeah. which yeah. is mm-hmm. in a really kind of hard swinging 9-8, and you can even hear it as it builds to the chorus. You can hear the drums doing those eighth notes yeah. in those groups of three. Um, so that, that's one that I'm fond of. And then um, You Make Me Feel Like a Natural Woman. also in 9-8 for something completely different, right? Sure. (laughs) Um, So that's one of the examples I've been using lately. Um, I'm going to pivot this to kind of answer uh, a question that I want to answer that you didn't exactly ask, but um, going back to the idea of how do you make fundamentals musical, um, one of the things I like to do is have my students take a song, a familiar song that they already know, like Silent Night or something, and then and mess with it, and 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 distort it and and rewrite it. So one of the assignments I enjoy doing is we we actually take Silent Night and we do a basic motivic analysis of it. Right, you have a measure that goes ba 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 ba, and that repeats exactly ba 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 ba, and then the next motive ba 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 takes the neighbor tone out. Right, it takes the neighbor tone out of the first motive. And then expands that to a fourth. And then the next part is a two-measure motive that repeats exactly. And then the next phrase has the high point in it, right? Right where we expected about that golden mean place. And it ends on the low tonic that we have not heard before. So that's the only time we hear the low tonic. And that's the unique high point, fa, fa. In the third Mm -hmm. phrase only happens once. So I said, okay, you're going to write a composition based on Silent Night. You're going to use the exact same rhythm, same rhythm as the song, but I want you to pick two intervals only. And this is in the chapter on intervals. So let's say your intervals Mm -hmm. are a half step and a perfect fourth, okay? And then take the inversion of those intervals, which of course you have to find, I'm not going to tell you. That's a major seventh and a perfect fifth. And those four intervals are the only intervals you're allowed to use melodically in your composition. And you create a motive in the first measure, you repeat that motive in the second measure, right? Then you go on with the same rhythm and then you repeat that motive at the beginning of the second phrase, expand it, repeat that two measure figure, and then whatever your highest note is has to happen in the same place, right? Where that fa happens in the original song, and whatever your lowest note has to happen, whatever your lowest note is, it has to happen as the last note, and so they end up getting this weird atonal kind of thing because they're only using <laughs> those intervals that they chose,
0: and they're not diatonic, right? And so, which
2: they're right, they're not, yeah, they, they're not in a key, and yeah. that's very liberating because they don't have to worry mm-hmm. about things like tendency tones and resolutions and things like that. Right, they're only worrying about. You know, are they using intervals? Are they writing the intervals correctly? And if they're following a structure, they'll realize that even though it's not tonal, it sounds like music. Mm. Um, mm. So, I don't know if you can hear my piano here, but well, we yep, might yep. if we if we have something like a uh, half step and a perfect fourth, and then they, then maybe they'll use the major seventh. It It doesn't sound like Silent Night, right? Right, well, and it still sounds like music. It doesn't sound like tonal Mm -hmm. music, but Mm -hmm. it still sounds like music. Um, And then for the the students, you know, we always have those students who want to be challenged more. I tell them, okay, if you want to have a little fun with it, instead of just repeating the first motive, you can invert it the second time you do it. So you can turn all your intervals upside down and they hear that it still has structural cohesion. Right. Mm-hmm. Or you can do a retrograde. So I'm, I'm teaching them about some atonal techniques surreptitiously. Yeah. Right?
1: Yeah.
2: Um, and then, and then we, all, we all perform them, and it's, it's kind of fun. And it's usually around Christmas time. Or it's, it's actually, it's usually like right between Christmas and Halloween, which is perfect. <laughs>
3: <laughs> I can just see that really broadening their horizons in terms of like mm-hmm. what their ears are really able to kind of grasp and what their their mind you know a lot of us I think are you know sometimes blind to like our own subconscious uh, interpretations, our own subconscious biases. Even when we're composing, mm-hmm. you think you have a blank slate, but nobody has a blank slate. So yeah. just to expand their palette a little bit like that, I, I love it. That's mm-hmm. fascinating.
2: Thank you. and I do think it comes from having been a composer. Um, and sort of being subjected to exercises like that at some point,
1: mm-hmm.
2: and um, it's almost you know working with uh, students in fundamentals is almost like working with with children where you think about their brains are sponges,
0: yeah,
2: right. And you can mm-hmm. and, and as long as they trust you, and and thank goodness so far they've always trusted me. Um, <laughs> you can really introduce them to some pretty cool ideas, and and most of the time they're willing to to, to soak that up.
0: Yeah. Many of us, uh, you know, Ben and myself included, um, are teaching exclusively online and you are too, Gina. So yes. can you talk a little bit about um, how your experience has been? And you know, we can all share kind of our horror stories and things that have been challenging, <laughs> yeah. but we also want to maybe focus on maybe the positives or the things that we've learned or things that actually have worked surprisingly well in this uh, setting. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on that.
2: I have learned so much doing this. And yeah, I, I'm not going to dwell on the negatives because I think we all know what they are, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, that the loss of group singing is just a tragedy, especially <laughs> for me. I'm a choral singer, you know, and just to not be able to hear that four-part harmony. But I said I wasn't going to dwell on that, so I won't. <laughs>
1: um,
2: I'm, teaching, I'm teaching six classes right now. <laughs> two Theory 3s, two Theory 1s, and two Aural Skills 1s. Um, and the theory classes are almost like teaching in a classroom. That's, that's not a big change. Um, I set up my iPad with an Apple pencil and I use it like a whiteboard. Um, Mm -hmm. and it's virtually indistinguishable from a regular class. Um, oral skills, as we all know, that's the challenge, right? Mm -hmm. Um, we can't, we can't group sing on zoom. Uh, The the latency and the sound quality issues are are just not good. So one of the things that that I've I've discovered is that when my class begins and I'm looking at all my students in little boxes, (laughs) um, a lot of them are set up in their dorm room or they're set up in a practice room. And so when we start off class and I say, hey, we're going to sing a scale and a triad, and, and I, I use hand signs, so I'll, I'll stand up and I'll do do, re, mi, fa, so, with hand signs, the ones who have their cameras on, they're, I, I can see they're actually doing it, and they're mm-hmm. singing along, and... The first time I saw it, I was like, wow, they, they trust me. They're actually participating. They're doing this thing I'm asking them to do, even though there's not the peer pressure of students in the room around them, mm-hmm. you know, also singing. And then I thought, oh, there aren't students around them, so they can't hide behind anyone when they're singing. They're either doing it or they aren't, and that's on them, right? So they, in a way, have to take ownership Mm -hmm. of the singing and of the learning. And if I have a student who maybe is a good musician, but has never really used their voice this way before, and they're in a regular, a traditional classroom where everybody around them is singing and maybe there are some really strong voices, they might feel intimidated. But if they're in a practice room, I'm hoping they're just gonna let it all hang out, right? Mm -hmm. They're gonna sing and hopefully maybe sing a little more confidently because they nobody, that nobody's listening to them. So that's one real positive that I discovered. Um, and another um, is that uh, in Zoom, you can set the chat so that the students can only chat to you right? So I can set it so the students can't chat with each other because we all know that could be a disaster. We all know we would do that in faculty meetings, right? Admit it. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, so I can do a dictation, right? I can do, let's say a chord dictation. I did one this morning and it was a pop song. It was one chord per measure. And it was like one, one, four, five, four, five, one, one. And I was say, okay, here's the first eight bars. When you have it, put the first measure in the chat. And I'll see the chats roll in, which is a lot more efficient than walking around the room.
0: Yeah.
2: Right? It's true. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'll see the chats roll in. If somebody is off by a little bit, I just click on their name and chat right back to them. And the rest of the class doesn't have to know. It's completely anonymous. Mm. Um, and and that's, that's really cool. Um, another thing I can do, um, going back to singing, is that uh, once we all sing and they have their mics on mute, I can say, okay, everybody put a number in the chat with five being the best and one being the worst. How did you feel about what you just sang? Right? Mm. And then I instantly get a sense of where they're at. Um, it's kind of like, um, it's sort of like having the clickers in the classroom. I've never used those, but it, it's sort of the same thing where you get instant feedback, but it's completely anonymous. So if somebody tells me that they feel like they did a two on that singing exercise. I can see that and I can say, okay, let's work on this. Um, I also have tried with varying degrees of success breakout rooms Mm -hmm. where I can send them into a breakout room and let's say we're doing scale and triad and tendency row. That's the exercise for the day. Okay, two or three of you go sing that for each other and then come back and my... My co-teacher, who is teaching part-time for us, uh, shout out to Rebecca Enlow. she's getting married tomorrow, so Rebecca Walker. Um, (laughs) She uh, used to be my, my grad assistant, and now she's been doing some adjunct teaching for us, and she has a music ed background. So she has a lot of really great ideas where she'll send students into breakout rooms, and then... They'll come back and she'll pick one person and say, okay, turn on your mic. No, you don't have to sing for me if you don't want to, but tell me one thing you did well and one thing you're going to try to improve on that. And it becomes a very self-reflective exercise. Uh Um, And a lot of these types of things just wouldn't be possible um, in a traditional classroom. So I'm trying to dwell on that. I'm trying to dwell on those types of trade-offs. we're using dictation software as well, which has its ups and downs. It's very labor intensive for me, but I think it also um, it gives them no excuse not to practice.
1: Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what what are you
2: using? Oh, am I allowed to say that? I didn't know if I was allowed to, you know, if it's advertising. Exactly. OK, <laughs> well, shout out to the guys down in Melbourne, Aurelian Musician. Oh, yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And and they've been great with customer service, very prompt. Um and I, again, I'm not gonna make it a commercial uh, for that software because um, the guys know that I, I've had my share of frustrations with it, but it's, it's, it's very customizable, um, which is wonderful and terrible because when, when, something, when a tool can do that many things, my mind immediately says, I can do this with it and I can do this with it and I can do this with it. And then suddenly I wanna make about 10 different quizzes with all kinds of customized
1: questions. Mm-hmm. Uh, (laughs) Right. I used musician in the spring and I found Uh it. I found it really helpful. And like you said, they're quick to get back to you. And it's Mm -hmm. very customizable. I I had the same problem where I was like, oh, there's so many options I can. (laughs) So I spent (laughs) I ended up spending a lot of time setting up a lot of quizzes, but it worked. And the Mm -hmm. students, you know, once they got used to kind of the platform and how it worked, the students uh, got a lot out of it. Yeah.
2: And I think if if you do what we do, I mean and the reason we're all here is because we're really into pedagogy, right? So if you're right. really vibing with the pedagogy, you're gonna to try to come up with creative exercises and it um and, and programs like that let you do that, which can be dangerous sometimes because I can totally go down a rabbit hole with those sorts of things. <laughs> right.
1: Yeah. <laughs>
2: um I haven't listened to your second episode yet. I know it's Rachel Mann and she's going to talk about coding and that's something I'm dying to learn how to do. And again, I know it's just going to be another rabbit hole if I do, because there's so many things you can create. Um, yes. Like, yeah, yeah
3: actually
1: software oh, that will grade figured bass. Sorry. Go ahead, Ben. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs>
2: exactly.
1: Yes. I was just
3: going to piggyback on the Aurelia musician. Cause one of my first questions to Tim Wilson, who I had a couple meetings with this summer mm-hmm was how customizable is this software and how do you import some Mm -hmm. of your own examples and your own exercises and kind of postulate your own uh, Mm -hmm. pedagogy in here. And he was really great at demonstrating it. So I'll I'll give a plug to him. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Peter and Tim have been great. Um, and, and Peter knows I've just been barraging him with emails questions and, and issues. So I, I really appreciate them. Um, I, there was something else I wanted to say about teaching on Zoom. Well, the, the commute across the hall is that, that, that's a nice part of it.
1: I miss uh, that commute.
2: <laughs> yeah, there's more shoeing
0: shoes in days. Same here,
2: <laughs> yeah. Because um, normally I drive an hour to work, and I've I've never wanted to do that. But because of the uh, the situation, like I said, I, I moved here um, when, uh I married my husband, and then moved here and we were you know how academic academia is you you, you try mm-hmm. to get something in the ballpark and youngstown yeah. was in the ballpark mm-hmm. um and we had already bought a house here before i got that job because academics also tend to do things backwards um <laughs> and so I, I found myself commuting an hour each way to teach eight o'clock classes oh my oh, goodness oh. i felt like i was getting up the night before you know um <laughs> So anyway, I I don't mind the commute across the hall, but boy, do I miss being in a classroom and singing four parts. Um, Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think for the most part, my students are resilient and they're rolling with it. And I think some of them like it this way, Uh, again, rather than being Mm -hmm. in a classroom full of distractions, really. um, If they can set up by themselves in a practice room and just be there, and go to class without you know worrying about the guy next to him that's horsing around or these two people over here passing notes or whatever for some students i think it's
1: it's a better learning experience yeah yeah i think so mm-hmm. i've had some tell me that they liked in the spring when a lot of their classes were even asynchronous that they liked kind of being mm-hmm. in control of when they consumed it and of their own kind of process and timeline and things like that. So since we're talking already about your students, why don't you tell us a little bit about the makeup of YSU and, you know, what type of majors you have, who your students are? Sure. Uh, We are a
2: medium-sized public university in the state of Ohio. And um, we, uh, our student population is mostly regional. Um, We have a lot of students here, who, um, who come from maybe five or six high schools in the area. And then it kind of thins out beyond that. We do have a lot of Western Pennsylvania students from outside of Pittsburgh as well. Um, so I know when I went to college, um, for me, I liked going someplace where nobody knew me. I was the only person there. Um, and I could like, kind of remake myself. And I can't quite imagine what it's like walking down the halls and, and seeing some of your high school buddies there, too. <laughs> you know, and I can't really imagine that for me. But for them, I think there's really a sense of camaraderie that, hey, we, we all decided to pursue this path together. Let's stick together. And I also get... Um, a lot of siblings, sets of siblings, oh. where I'll get a person, then I'll get their younger sister. And then um, coming up next year, I'm actually getting the third in a family. Um, oh, yeah. a lot, lots of cousins, too. Um, and that, that's kind of cool. Mm-hmm. And um, Youngstown is got a reputation as being kind of a rough and tumble area. It's um, It was an outgrowth of the steel industry in Pittsburgh. Um, and so now it's become kind of the middle of the Rust Belt. When the steel mills closed in the 80s, that was a very rough time and they're, they're still recovering from that. And then you might've heard the national news that the GM Lordstown plant closed down and we lost a lot of population from the area because mm. of that. Um, so coming from a small private school to a state school like Youngstown, there was a very big difference in the type of student body And it really wasn't better or worse. It was kind of a trade-off where Mm -hmm. um, I saw students at Youngstown with so much determination, and this is becoming a cliche word now, but so much grit Mm -hmm. because they were raised by parents or grandparents who maybe had lost their jobs in the steel industry and said, okay, you are going to college, you're going to do something you love and you're going to be better off than I ended up and you're going to work hard. And they do i mean some of my students a lot of my students hold down jobs sometimes two jobs while they're trying to go to school Mm -hmm. and they're they're very um real they have a very real work ethic um and they're very um show me the money kind of i I don't mean that in a bad way i mean that you Mm -hmm. can't be yes your way through teaching them right they'll know Mm -hmm. you know Mm -hmm. i'm here I'm going to work hard and you're going to work hard, too. I mean, so they expect a lot out of me. Um, And and I kind of like that that sort of attitude. It's really refreshing.
0: Yeah, and it's great. And it pays to have an applied approach to your teaching because it's not just this theoretical concept, but this is where you can see it and this is how you can do it in real life.
2: Yeah, and I know this is a big discussion in the field at large, but I've just found a, a natural evolution in my teaching away from part writing,
1: mm-hmm.
2: right, mm-hmm. away from common practice music and into much more uh, pop repertoire, uh, pop folk. Um, I don't know world music that well. It's a gap in my knowledge that I would like to correct, Um and I find myself, when I, when I look back over the semester and the examples I used, I'd say maybe less than half of it now is the Bach, Beethoven, Mozart that all of us were mm-hmm. raised on. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's, that's happening to a lot of us. And I think it's also our students' influence, right? Reach me through the music that matters to me. hmm uh, I know Jenny was talking about that a couple of weeks ago when she said, I always ask students, what is the music that you listen to? What is the music that moves you? And then she tries to incorporate those specific pieces throughout the semester. I think that's mm-hmm. great. Yeah,
1: absolutely. Yeah, really good for sure. Mm-hmm. Do you have a large population of like music education majors then, I imagine? Mm-hmm. Yes, mm-hmm. Uh, mostly music education.
2: I'd say that's probably... 80 to 90% of our students, of our music students. um, We have a burgeoning recording program. It's a very small recording program and that's pretty popular. Um, And our composition studio is actually um, going like gangbusters right now. Uh, We have a great fellow, shout out to Dave Morgan. He is our bass teacher. Um, He is also a very well-known jazz musician in the Cleveland area. Uh, he's a fabulous musician and a really uh, innovative composer, and he has attracted a huge composition studio, so we're really thrilled about that.
0: Yeah, the jazz program, I remember from when I was growing up in Northeastern Ohio, I was always really good at Youngstown State and had really great players coming out of there.
2: Mm-hmm. I, I should I should say that too. Yeah, jazz is, is still pretty strong here. Um, yeah, it was was probably Tony Leonardi was the guy that was running it back then, and he has passed away. But there's a scholarship in his honor. Um, yeah, Kent Engelhart is running it now, and and we do have some superb jazz bands. And and he's been pretty innovative with the types of smaller groups. Uh, you know, uh, if a student signs up for jazz combo, it's probably not gonna be like a jazz trio or quartet. It might be like a Motown group. Mm or one year there was a Frank Zappa ensemble. Um yeah. 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 That's so great. yeah, it, the the smaller program allows us to be very flexible with mm-hmm. things like small ensembles and chamber music. It's just pretty cool. Yeah,
3: yeah, and it sounds like that would probably correlate with like as you were talking about the evolution of your teaching, you know, that you can mm-hmm. evolve the ensembles and involve the repertory that's just throughout the the school you know wherever you are yeah i mean that's something we're definitely working on uh, Mm -hmm. up at north texas you know to kind of make it across the board change right
2: right and um yeah and and the students i think they they just eat it up they they love it
0: well unfortunately we are uh, we've eaten up all of our time for today (laughs) Uh, but before we go we um, have just Uh, three rapid fire questions for you, Gina. Uh And so these are, these are questions that have been locked in a vault and you don't know the questions and, but we're just looking for just a short little answer. You don't have to, um, explain yourself or give a defense or a reason, um, I'll, I'll go first here, okay. and then Jen, and then Ben will go. And can so, I just
2: say something before you start? Sure. This is, this is like a sightseeing exam, right? <laughs> Where I have the three pieces of paper, and my students pick up one, there you go. and they have, oh, oh my God. gosh, okay, now I understand
0: how that feels, no. okay. All right, so this, this will be a lot less terrifying than okay. sightseeing. So um, my question is, 564 or 164? How long can my answer be? one sentence but you can it can be like an adorno sentence it could be like multiple <laughs> th- clauses you know commas semicolons i
2: might lose some friends here but 164
0: all right 164
2: because i think content is important i think content is important to performing musicians who have to think in music and if you see a chord coming up you want to know what notes go into it so, mm. function is important, but I denote function by writing DOM for dominant mm. under it. Um, now, in, in the classroom, I actually, you know, because I'm not a department of one, uh, we actually use CD64 as a compromise mm. because uh, my, my colleague uh, is, is a 564 person. Okay. <laughs> I you
3: like whispered that.
2: that. Yes. <laughs> we, we whisper that word, yeah.
1: <laughs> All right. So, minor do or minor law.
2: Minor do absolutely. <laughs> minor Doe. Um, when I'm teaching augmented six chords, I want to teach Lei Doe Yeah. I don't want to teach Lei do in major and, gosh, Fa Ri in minor. Um, <laughs> I, I want students... because And, and I, I think it comes down to, what are you using solfege for? If you're using solfege just to sight sing, most of your music's going to move from major to relative minor,
1: right? right?
2: Mm-hmm. And, and you, you want to be fluent in that law minor, right? I'll, I'll give you the, the old when I was a kid. <laughs> when I was mm-hmm. a kid, when I was in school, we had four hours of ear training a week, and we had to learn both systems, la and do, because wow. each system is used. The system should always serve the music, not vice mm-hmm. versa. The music mm-hmm. should never serve the system. But I discovered very early on that solfege could be used as a teaching tool for theory, not just for sight singing. Mm-hmm. So if I tell my students, okay, five of five, you got to find the five chord, and then you go up five and then I build a dominant chord on that, that's a process. But Ray Phi La is a fact. And re-fi-la-do is a fact that they can memorize and say that's always going to be five of five because phi is the leading tone of sol. So I think when you use solfege in that uh, context Mm -hmm. for music theory and not just for sight singing and not just for dictation, the answer becomes clear that you really have to use the do minor. Mm
3: -hmm. Great. Great answer. I'll continue with mine. Favorite topic to teach?
2: Oh. Um, actually, I'm going to put in a plug for myself because I just wrote a chapter on this in Lee Van Handel's <laughs> book, and it's enharmonic um, modulation, meaning the uh, the German augmented sixth and the and the five seven, mm-hmm. um, because and if I can go back to an earlier question you asked. You actually asked uh, what's what are some of my favorite examples for teaching music fundamentals? I have a favorite example for teaching this topic, which of course, is not a fundamentals. It's much more um, complex. but there's um, there's a moment in a Sondheim show, uh, a Little Night Music, where there's a character who's uh, he's basically played as a complete arrogant buffoon, and he's talking about, He's afraid his mistress has cheated on him, right? He suspects his mistress has cheated on him. Now think about that sentence for a minute, <laughs> right? So he's talking about he's talking about fidelity and how important fidelity is, and it's a fidelity is what a man expects from life. Fidelity, like mine to Desiree, his mistress, and Charlotte, my devoted wife. See, I'm so faithful that I'm faithful to two women, right? And there's a moment where when he sings that line that a five seven of five changes into a german augmented sixth and modulates by a tritone right in the middle Mm. of the phrase
3: perfect and it's so
2: strange and so abrupt and i think i was in the car the first time i hear it heard it and nearly drove off the road (laughs) (laughs) because he sets it up in f major and then drops a minor third to D major in the next phrase, drops a minor third to B major in the next phrase, as this guy's argument is starting to unravel. Mm. And then when he delivers the punchline, he modulates by a tritone back to F to do the next verse. Um, ah. So that's one of my, that, that's really one of my favorite things to teach. And, uh, and shameless plug, that is in the Rutledge Guide to Music Theory Pedagogy, edited by Lee Van Handel. You can read more about that.
0: There you go. That's Fantastic. great. Yeah. Go I love check it. that out. I love That's, that's a great topic because that's a, a tricky one for students to get their head around uh, <laughs> sometimes. So yeah. thank you again for joining us. Um, can you just tell us maybe a little bit about, um, you know, we know you're at Youngstown State, but any uh, ways that people can reach out to you if they have questions and any sure. kind of projects that um, you've got currently uh, working? Sure. Um-
2: I am really bad about having a personal website. I don't really have one, but you can find me on Facebook. Um, I'm, I'm pretty generous in my acceptance of friend requests, so that's a good way to find me. Uh, you can look me up at YSU. I do answer my school email. Projects coming up. Well, um, actually, I have a project in mind where I'm going to try to be a composer again. Um, I, uh, many years ago, went to the Fontainebleau School right out of college. Mm -hmm. Um, And for those who don't know, that's a composition and performance school in Fontainebleau, France that was founded by Nadia Boulanger, just celebrated their centennial. And I met um, a lifelong friend there, uh, Kendra Preston Leonard, who was a cellist at the time. She is now a musicologist based in Houston, and she doesn't play anymore, but she, she does tons and tons of research particularly on on, um, silent film and sound and she also writes poetry and opera libretti so she has written a set of poems about our time at fontainebleau Hmm. and i am in the process of writing a chamber work that uh, is for piano and voice and uh, mezzo soprano and that's going to be margaret o'connell who was another friend of ours from fontainebleau and then uh, and cello, which is a shout out to Kendra's instrument. And we're putting together the instrumentalists here at YSU and hope to have that uh, premiered sometime in 2021, 2022, or whenever we start having live concerts again. Um, So that's that's my next project. I've applied for a sabbatical for next year. So keep your fingers crossed for me on that. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah.
0: That's great. That's that's awesome. I'm happy to hear that you're still composing. It's hard to do when we're you're teaching six classes. Well, <laughs> I'm not doing energy. it while I'm teaching six classes. That's why I'm <laughs> sympathetic. Oh,
1: that's
2: great. Um, but yeah, anybody who would like to reach out to me, um, if anybody is using my theory book and has questions about it, um, I love to hear from people who you know who who are who I am people who I'm teaching and don't know it. You know, people who might be reading my book um, and learning. Um, I'd, I'd love to re- for you to reach out to me and uh, talk to me a little further about it.
0: So that's our show. Thank you so much for listening to Note Doctors, the music theory and pedagogy podcast. We'll be back with more interviews with professors and teachers who will be dropping all sorts of theory knowledge for your education, edification, and enjoyment. So until then, bye bye.